Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Ivan Gazidis, the CEO of AC Milan. We've had some great guests lately, including Semra Hunter, Lutz Fahnenstiel, and Jack Harrison. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with Ivan Gazidis. Our guest now is a name that should be familiar to American listeners. Ivan Gazidis is the CEO of AC Milan, the great Italian club that is back atop the Italian top flight in what is shaping up to be a special season. Ivan spent a decade as the chief executive at Arsenal, and before that, he was on the ground floor of the start of MLS, spending 14 years with the league, including seven as the league's deputy commissioner. Ivan, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Grant. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, and I'm looking forward to our chat. Yeah, lots to talk about here, and congratulations on what Milan is doing this season. It's been Really cool to see the resurgence, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, we saw we saw this starting to happen uh, at the after the restart last season. What are some of the most important moments, in your opinion, in bringing Milan to the top of the Serie A standings? You know, it's a re- it's really interesting, Grant. It's not it's not one thing. Uh, I think, you know, there's so many stories to be written here. Actually, it's it's really a great story with lots of moments. Um, so, you know, you could tell a story about uh, uh, our coach, Stefano Pioli, and the great job he is doing. He came into a really difficult situation, as new coaches usually do, uh, and uh, just brought calm and focus and a real modernity to his approach to the game. Um, very, very impressive guy, top-class coach. You could tell a story about Paolo Maldini and our sporting director with him at his side, Ricky Massara, and the job they've been doing. You know, Paolo, obviously a massive legend in the game, but is applying applying himself to something that's new. Uh, And uh, that would be a great story of itself. Uh, You could tell a story uh, about the ownership. You know, this club has been through some ownership changes, and now we've got a new... American ownership um, and you know they had to really rescue the club from a very very difficult financial situation you could tell a story about Ibrahimovic uh, you know ex-MLS uh, comes into Syria uh, to prove himself all over again you could tell the story about this team uh, this team has been completely reconstructed with very young players I mean despite Ibra we are the second youngest team in the top five leagues and the youngest team in Syria are. So we have rebuilt the team really from the bottom up with young players who are developing their careers with the team, who have character, have technical ability and, and obviously uh, physical ability as well. So there are a lot of different stories, Grant. There are a lot of different moments and all of them are true. You just took the all of my questions, so we're done. Uh, <laughs> no, it's 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 true, and it's very cool, sort of, to hear you be able to to talk about all those things coming together. Um, I also want to talk about you. You didn't mention yourself in in that. Um, 
And I'm curious to know, why did you want to take the Milan CEO job in 2018? You know, Grant, I'm, uh, I'm a football fan since I was a kid. You know, I played this game. I still play it whenever I can. Um, and if you're my generation, you know, you grew up uh, knowing what Milan is. And these great teams, uh, this incredible European history, seven Champions Leagues, um, and uh, so not just an Italian club, but really an international club. I mean, even today, Milan has... 530 million fans around the world. It's one of the biggest clubs in the world. But it's gone through uh, seven or eight years of really a difficult time for one reason and another. It just has not been able to perform at the level that it should be. Um, so you have this incredible name in football, which has fallen on hard times, playing in a league, which you could also say in some senses. I mean, Syria in the 90s and early 2000s was the best league in the world. And over time, for a variety of reasons that we could discuss if we had time, you know, it's, it's fallen from grace somewhat. But to me, all of those things represent a, a huge opportunity, you know, and probably for me, a unique opportunity in football. I, I don't think there is another club of this size that with the right care and the right kind of decisions could be brought alive in the same way. So I, I, I found it a really intriguing professional challenge for me, uh, something that, uh, you know, in my life, I'm mid-50s now, so, you know, there's not going to be that many more fantastic uh, challenges that I can take on. And this, to me, was seemed a really worthwhile one, something that I hope uh, I hope we can achieve. It's really hard. We're still a work in progress. But we're moving in the right direction. And uh, I do believe that uh, there's everything here that you need for greatness. I mean, the, the passion of the Italian fans in general, but in particular, the, the Milan fans is extraordinary. And they've been through a hard time. And it's one of the sort of quiet, um, one of the quiet sadnesses of lockdown. There are many terrible things that have happened during the last year around the world. But one of the quiet uh, regrets is that our fans haven't been in the stadium to watch these performances because this is a really exciting team. It's a team you want to watch, uh, playing really enjoyable football, young kids growing together with uh, enthusiasm and togetherness. And I'd love, you know, I'd love for your wonderful wife uh, and all of the people that are working on, on this, uh, this terrible problem that the world has, uh, that we all can come together and help out and do our part so that, uh, so that we can bring back so many facets of life, including uh, great football. How do you think your years at Arsenal and in MLS prepared you for what you've encountered in Italy? It's really interesting, Grant. Um, each one of these experiences is looking at uh, football through a really different prism. It's like looking at something that you're very familiar with, but from a completely different angle. And I think there are three completely different angles. And, and very, very interesting to see the sport from so many different perspectives. You know, I think that's what been one of the joys of this journey for me has been 
to be able to really reflect on um, on things that I thought were important and that now perhaps I think are less important or things that um, I thought I really had nailed down and now I realize, you know, there are other ways of approaching that type of problem. Uh, it's, it's too much to really try to describe, Grant, because they're so different. I mean, the, the U.S. landscape is in many ways, from a sports business perspective, the most sophisticated and developed in the world. So you have, you know, this incredibly mature sports business landscape with a new, I mean, Mark Abbott and I were the two first employees of Major League Soccer. It was literally a startup that everyone, you know, I remember uh, the LA Times calling us mythical league soccer. So, you know, we were fighting, we were scrapping for attention we were scrapping to try to get investors in. Um, and it's still a league which is really in a growth phase, in a developmental phase, but in this very sophisticated sports business landscape. Mm-hmm. Then to go to Arsenal in England, where you have a very mature um, uh, sport. You know, the, the league has uh, got all the incredible history, known all around the world. But still, really, from a sports business perspective, was in a development phase. Um, And so, despite the sophistication in some ways of the Premier League, um, you know, I've always felt Major League Soccer has, uh, you know, incredible uh, people with, you know, brilliance uh, and and know-how and intelligence and strategic thinking. So I never felt like... It was a, you know, it's a step down to be in Major League Soccer. I think it stands on on its own two feet with any league in the world. But of course, there you're not fighting for attention. You're you're trying to manage the attention. It's a very different type of challenge uh, with enormous pressure. The other thing is going, of course, from the league side to the club side. You know, you're going from uh, something where. You know, you're trying. The challenge is different. You're trying to manage many different personalities and keep a calm balance and keep that strategic focus. And of course, you try to do that with the team as well. But on a team side, you're in an environment that changes, swings from one direction to another on a weekly basis. And a big club like Arsenal, you know, that's that's dramatic. And then to come to Italy, where I would say, you know, those attributes of what I've described in England are perhaps even more dramatic. You know, the emotional side of the game here, uh, even at the ownership level, is really uh, much more to the fore. Mm. So um, I think this is really the opportunity for Italian football. It is, can you bring process and strategic thinking? Because everything else is here. Um, And I believe we can, and I actually think we're beginning to see that in Italian football. But you, it's, a, it's a cultural challenge for me as well. One of the reasons I wanted to come here is not just for the professional challenge, Grant. You know, I'm, I'm learning a new culture, uh, a new language. Uh, I did my first interview this week on Sky, an hour and a half in Italian. Wow. So these are great things to be doing, uh, you know, great challenges, all of them. And you learn from every little piece of it. That's really interesting. I'd like to know what your strategies are for advancing Milan on and off the field, but let's start with on the field from your perspective. What does that strategy look like? So we came into a, a really uh, a club that was in a bad financial situation. We had uh, 
you know, revenues had remained flat for a long time and the other clubs had all, you know, uh, taken over. Um, and at the same time, our wage bill had continued to increase. So we were making very big losses and we still are. This is like a, this is not a ship that you just turn on a dime. It, it takes a while to turn a, an ocean liner and that's really what we're doing. Um, so we need to bring, on the football side, we knew we needed to bring our uh, spending into line with our revenues. That's never a very popular thing to say or uh, even less popular to, to do. But we also knew at the same time that we had a team that wasn't performing particularly well. This is a club that um, hasn't uh, been in the Champions League for years. And so at the same time as bringing down spending, primarily player spending, of course, we had to increase uh, uh, performance. And that trick is not easy anywhere in the world, believe me. I mean, it's, it's one thing to improve performance when, you, when you're spending more. It's another to do it when you're spending less. So what we needed uh, was a very clear strategy. And we needed in some ways to be countercultural here. Because if we were doing the same things that uh, clubs like Juventus or Inter uh, were doing, we were, we were not going to be able to overtake them or succeed in competing with them. Because they're ahead of us in their project. So um, we brought in a lot of new ideas. We brought in uh, a lot of analytics, football analytics. Uh, we brought in a really good uh, scouting department. Uh, we wanted somebody who could lead all of this and Paolo Maldini came back into the club uh, after 10 years out doing different ventures um, for the first time. Uh, and, you know, Paolo is somebody with all the right qualities uh, to be able to, to do that as our point of reference on the sporting side. And then our focus was young players. We were going to sign, we have signed, and we will continue to sign uh, top young players, top talent, top talent from around the world, uh, but players who were hungry to develop their careers, proud to wear the jersey here and to develop their careers with us. So we were not interested in... in uh, mercenaries who were here to have a payday. We were interested in players who had something to prove in one way or another. And, and funnily enough, even Ibra falls into that category, really, because uh, although he's at the other end of the age spectrum, you know, this is a very romantic challenge for him. I mean, he has a special bond with the club. And to lead a group of very, very young players and to help to bring the club back up, I think was a challenge that he really responded to. So it's been a strange, an interesting combination of things that we did. Uh, we needed to find the right coach to lead that as well. And we've done that with Stefano Pioli with some missteps along the way, but we are in uh, a really good place now, as you say, since, uh, since we returned after lockdown, uh, we, we've got one of the best, maybe the best record in Europe. Um, and uh, not just, it's not just a question of wins and losses. I think, you know, winning is a necessary state at a club like Milan, but it's not sufficient. You know, we also have to play really progressive, good football. And we're doing that with a bunch of kids that uh, you, you just can't help but love. It's been a lot of fun to, to watch the team play this season. In terms of off the field, you're the CEO. What is the strategy off the field? So we have... Uh, a, you know, a few different uh, uh, pillars that we are looking at and, and developing. 
Um, the first uh, of those pillars would be the stadium. You know, we play in San Siro, which is one of the great stadiums of the world. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, an image of the, the club, um, an image of Milano, the city um, that is known all around the world. But, uh, you know, the first ring of San Siro was built in 1924, the second ring in 1950s and the third ring in 1990. It's, uh, it's one of those giant old stadiums that just doesn't have the facilities that is, is needed in modern sport. Um, and we see with Major League Soccer what the development of soccer-specific stadiums has meant for the league. We see with the Premier League, the regeneration of the Premier League, the reinvention of the Premier League really had its foundation with new stadiums. Uh, after English football was was uh, at its uh, lowest point, um, and here in Italy, um, the foundation of the growth of the Italian game has to be new stadiums, new facilities that will be uh, inclusive and appropriate for the next generation of football fans. And so, building a new stadium here in Milan is is one priority, and we have made a lot of progress on that in the last two years. We have uh, preliminary approvals uh, from the city. Uh, We have developed uh, plans uh, for what we believe will be the best uh, and most beautiful club stadium in the world. And the reason that uh, we're able to make a stadium so special, I mean, the designs that we have are really extraordinary, is because we have two giant clubs sharing the stadium. So this will be a joint project with Inter And that transforms the economics and makes it really feasible to do some special things with the stadium. So to build a new stadium at the site of San Siro, in the parking lot, basically, uh, which will be just as iconic, uh, but it'll be a new stadium for the next 50 years. So that's one piece. The second piece is is really uh, turning the club uh, into a modern... Uh, into a modern football club. That is a club that has the digital capability to reach and engage our fan base all around the world. I mean, I said we have more than 500 million fans, but the club, when I arrived two years ago, did not have an official app, for example. So, you know, we've done a huge amount on digital engagement. We're growing at an extremely fast rate. Um, We just opened this week our new studios to uh, develop new content and put it out through our digital channels. Um, And really, there's been a lot of development there. And in conjunction with that, of course, we're bringing in new commercial partners as well. So it's been a difficult time to do that with COVID because of, uh, you you know, commercial commercial budgets, marketing budgets are often the first to be cut. But nevertheless, we've had great success. And so you'll see our stable of commercial partners has expanded, um, commercial revenues are developing, um, and so we're in a really good shape there uh, um, as well. Uh, and then finally, the, there is a, an important piece, which is, um, and actually is particularly important now with COVID, you know, there's a lot of thinking going on in the game about what the, uh, how the game should develop, um, you know, what the new future of European competition should look like. And for a club like Milan, it's very important that we are at the center of that conversation and influential in it. 
Uh, Milan's always had a seat at the table in the past. And so, um, you know, I've spent time, I spent a lot of time at Arsenal working on the European level, uh, including on the, the UEFA Executive Committee and on the European Club Association Executive Board and various other bodies, FIFA Stakeholders Committee and so on. And I remain uh, in in those positions on the uh, European Club Association, the UEFA com- uh, Competitions Committee, etc. So anyway, we have a voice at the table. We are, again, an active and respected participant in shaping the game here in Italy, but also across Europe. And that will also uh, make a difference to the football landscape and Milan will be at the centre of those developments. So these are some of the things we're working on. All of them uh, have been challenging, but all of them for us, from the football to all of the off-field things I'm describing, are pointing in the right direction and, and moving in the right direction for us. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Ivan Gazidis, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and get frustrated because it's not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like B in Sports in English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I was going to ask this later, but you brought it up, so I'll ask it now. We've heard talk for years about a potential European Super League it actually goes back decades, but it's been talked about a lot recently, too. How serious a possibility do you think that is? And what do you think the landscape of European football could look like in the future? Look, Grant, you're right to say, you know, this discussion has been going on for decades and, and probably will go on for decades more. Um, and, you know, there are um, th- there are there is this. Uh, question of definition, because, you know, what is the Super League? In some senses, you could say the Champions League, as it is today, uh, would have been called the Super League 20 years ago. You know, now we have uh, this huge competition that that has not just champions in it, has, uh, you know, a lot of teams that qualify, that add interest to the local leagues, because you've got the top four teams and top three teams and top two teams. I mean, so um, there, are, there are always in the background conversations about what the future of European competition will look like. Uh, and there'll always be some ideas put on the table about this you know, breakaway revolutionary Super League. But the focus of clubs, uh, the primary focus is continue, 
is and continues to be, will continue to be, discussions with UEFA about how we can develop uh, the Champions League, Europa League competitions uh, in a way that really has to be conscious of the way fans are developing. You know, we, are, we need football to um, appeal to the next generation of fans. And football is very conservative, so it tends to be a little bit behind the curve. And it would be great to think we could strategically look forward because young fans, young kids and, and the next generation are not engaging with the game in the same ways uh, that, that my generation did. Uh, there are many more ways for them to engage. So it's really exciting, but we need to understand them and create a game that is going to appeal to them. And that requires a lot of strategic thinking, a lot of collaboration. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the kind of discussion I hope we can have with UEFA because clubs are really the heart of the game. We're the ones there at the coalface every week. Uh, we're the ones who understand fans better than anybody. Um, and we're the ones that understand players and the demands that are on players. Um, and we understand competition because we're in competition every single day. So uh, I'm hopeful that we'll come up with more and better and more exciting European competition uh, that everyone will enjoy for the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years. And then we'll have this conversation again in 20 years and it'll probably be the same conversation again, Grant. We just saw another Italian club, Spezia, uh, bought by an American owner recently. So there are now North American owners for Spezia, Milan, Roma, Parma, Fiorentina, and Bologna. I think I got them right. Um, what are your thoughts on the potential of Syria A in the coming years and its place in Europe and where American owners might fit in that? I, it's really interesting, Grant. I think, you know, the, reason, the, person, the reasons I spoke about uh, that I saw the potential here in Italy are obviously being seen by others. Um, and uh, it's not just the club's ownerships, but we also have private equity funds coming involved at the, at the league level, wanting to be involved in commercializing the broadcast rights uh, for Syria. Uh, it's clearly a league that people see an enormous amount of potential in. Again, because it has everything. It has uh, huge brands, name, club names, the league itself known all around the world. It has uh, fallen behind a little bit, but that also means it has enormous potential for growth with the right investments uh, in stadiums and in you know the kind of uh, digital and, and commercial aspects that I've been speaking about. Um, and that's clearly being seen by a lot of different people. And as these new ownerships and new investments come in, we're going to see Syria are developing at a pace. And I think over the next five to 10 years, um, Syria are, will be, um, will, will have some serious momentum behind it. Got a couple more questions here for Ivan Gazidis, CEO of AC Milan. Really appreciate you taking the time here, Ivan. Um, We've talked a little bit about this, but the Milan squad is very young overall, as you mentioned. You have this 39-year-old center forward, though, in Zlatan Ibrahimovic, still playing at a very high level. A lot of smart soccer people thought Zlatan was done with his injury at Man United a few years ago. How is he still doing this? 
And are you interested in extending his contract beyond this season? You know, uh, I don't know how he's doing it. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, he's, uh, he's an exception to the rules, Grant. You know, he's, you know I think uh, people talk about Zlatan's uh, character and his personality and, and you know, perhaps uh, some people feel he goes too far sometimes. But this extreme desire that he has... Um, is extraordinary. This will that he has is extraordinary. Um, and he ha he has really channeled that into his body, into his physical capabilities. And he works like uh, nobody else I've seen um, in football. Certainly that's what he's done since he's come to, to Milan. And uh, I think it's a great challenge for him. So he's enjoying his football. Uh, he's scoring goals like crazy, more than a goal a game. Uh, and he's got a team around him that really supports him. I mean, these are young guys that look up to him and will run for him. So, um, you know, Zlatan, and Zlatan still has quality. You know, when he has a chance, he scores. So uh, we, he continues to surprise everybody and continues to prove everybody wrong because there were a lot of skeptics here in Italy that, uh, you know, that he would be successful. Um, why not? You know, why not continue uh, when he's performing at this level, if he's physically capable of doing it, if he wants to do it um, and his family will accept him continuing? Um, why not? Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I do want to ask you real quick about Weston McKenney is an American player who's gone to Juventus and had a real impact this season. Uh, Roma just bought a young American, Brian Reynolds, who hadn't even played very long in MLS. Is Italy viewing American players differently now, in particular MLS players? And and when is Milan going to get its own American player? <laughs> you know, um, I don't think it's just Italy viewing American players. Uh, I'm, and I'm not even sure it's so different. But, but I think MLS is taken seriously as a league with some very good young talent in it. You know, Brian Reynolds is a player uh, that a lot of clubs had on their radar screen, even though he you know, hadn't played very much, as you said. Um, and uh, it's not just in Italy. If we look across Europe, uh, you know, um, American players are, are playing at the highest level and doing really well. Um, you know, this is inevitable. I mean, I, I, I'm in some ways um, a little surprised that it's, you know, uh, that we don't have more players uh, that are coming through into the, to the European scene. And, um, uh, I think this is a good mix. I mean, I think there are great players playing in MLS as well, by the way. So it's, it's you know, there, there are so many good options, I think, for, for top American players today. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that, that I think is um, really to be welcomed and celebrated. Couple quick questions about MLS here at the end, Ivan. I wasn't going to let you get away completely. <laughs> You were there, obviously, at the start of the league. You were one of the first two employees. You've always told me there are some crazy stories about how the league got going in the first place. What stands out to you when you look back at your role in the start of MLS? Wow, Grant. I mean, I, I really don't even know where to start. You know, we, <laughs> I think when people think about MLS today, you know, it's uh, an established part of the sports landscape. We have... I have 5,000 stories uh, of those early days, none of which you would believe. 
And, uh, you know, we were, we were young kids. I was 28 years old, 29 years old. Uh, Mark Abbott, the same age as me. And we were, no one was interested in what we had to say. You know, no one was interested <laughs> in us uh, except Lamar Hunt. God bless him. Um, and, you know, somehow we cobbled together with, you know, tape and bits of string, something that looked like uh, a league that, uh, that, you know, we had to put together in record time. Um, and the first game came, you know, before we were ready and people came and people came and uh, people were ready for it. You know, the, the, the sport... You know, we always joke, we had a big prospectus to try to sell Major League Soccer to investors. And, and you know, this could not be a romantic vision. This had to be a business proposition. Um, and the first line in the entire prospectus, it was about 110 pages long, was there is a demand for professional soccer in the United States. Now, the rest of the prospectus was all heavily verified, like every word was really verified down to the nth degree. We didn't say anything we couldn't substantiate, except that first line. That was a leap of faith. And uh, there was. And the people came. And look at MLS today. Well, any book publishers who are listening, if, if Ivan's got 5,000 stories, consider this a book proposal right here. And, uh, and we'll work on that down the road. Um, Don Garber has been the MLS commissioner for 22 years now. Even Don has said he's not going to be the commissioner forever. I'm not sure about that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever have any interest in being the MLS commissioner someday? Listen, Don's done a great job, and whoever follows him will have a very hard act to follow whenever that might be. And I know, you know, but I got a very clear view on who the, the next commissioner should be, and I know him better than anybody. Uh, it should be Mark Abbott. You know, to me, he's the founder of MLS, the brain behind it. Uh, he's a guy with uh, strong principles, clear vision, honesty, integrity, all the personal qualities. He knows every aspect of of the league and of the sport. Uh, you know, for me, I, my vote is Mark Abbott. Interesting. One last question. I appreciate the time here. I've always thought it was interesting that MLS's single entity system was kind of like soccer socialism, which I'm sure you've heard before, while European soccer has always been sort of the Wild West, which is kind of the opposite of the political systems of the U.S. and European countries. Has that ever struck you as well? Yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> it has. I mean, you know, the reality of MLS is... Uh, we we simply would not have a league. We would not have had investors if we didn't have the kind of safety rails and security. No one would have invested in stadiums. Nobody would have made the investments that have been made in the sport without uh, some kind of structure that had safety nets. And in Europe, in Europe, we have a you know uh, we operate without those safety nets, and that makes the product. And ultimately, it plays through to the game on the field. The game, uh, extraordinarily compelling. But at the same time, it creates an environment in which big clubs and small clubs are always operating, you know, 
uh, on the edge if they're not very, very disciplined. So it's not a healthy environment, but it is a compelling environment. And so, you know, how do you find the right balance between these two uh, kind of extremes? I think, you know, I think MLS uh, really is on the right path. I think it's, it's much easier to develop more freedom and, and in a controlled way develop a league that you need to invest in than it is to try to bring you know, an out-of-control uh, runaway train to a, to, a, to a stop and to slow it down a little bit and to put some constraints on it. That is what's happening in European football. You know, we have financial fair play at the UEFA level. Many of the leagues are bringing in more financial regulations, uh, trying to just bring a little bit more stability without losing the essence of the game, which is competition. Um, and I think, you know, over time, what I see is MLS moving towards Europe and Europe moving towards MLS, and perhaps they'll meet somewhere in the middle. Ivan Gazidis is the CEO of AC Milan. Ivan, thanks for coming on the show. Great to talk to you always, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Ivan Gazidis as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.